When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Keep elbows off the table too. Yeah, the, the, this I would normally have made us record upstairs, but because I did oversleep, Mel also overslept. Um, mm. So we didn't have time to clear off the table. Two sleeping or, babies. I understand. Yeah. All right. So we're going to review the rules of the game really quick. Yes, review because we know them for sure. <laughs> I know them by heart. Uh, so if we engage in dialogue at any point, and that's where this table, this gets really challenging. In order to speak to one another, we have to put our hand on the tower while we speak. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so that's that that's what we've got here so like yeah we'd, we'd have to like just do this and this is all it has to be mm-hmm. um the rules state that you're not allowed to anchor your arm on the table which actually does not matter because that would be a fucking nightmare for us to do now monsters um <laughs> so what a bad table yeah what a, what a bad table for the specific purpose that we're using <laughs> this table for i i truly truly love Very uh, funny. it The Uhuru has docked at uh, one of, you know, I'm going to say dozens, if not hundreds, of skyship ports around Du Mignon. Du Mignon, as a city, is actually like very separate encampments or townships along a river delta that is shaped not unlike an angel feather. There are rivers that split off into many rivers and intentionally dug canals that move out into either pools or craters that are created from, you know, meteorite impacts from a very long time ago. And if you were to look at it from a bird's eye view, you would see that it is not unlike the fronds and eyes of an angel feather from the sky. Where we are now is inside one of the craters that has flooded with brackish water to become a pool. So the mini city or or district of Dumignon that you are currently in is a bunch of interconnected docks, floating houseboats, and built onto stilts buildings that are all part of this crater that was created by a meteor and beneath is a sunken city or sunken part of Dumignon that used to be part of the city. 
goodness knows how long ago. We move, like, down the dock of the Uhuru. We can see dock workers who are elaborately dressed. Like, they're they're definitely in work clothes, but they're in a more dressed-up version of work clothes. It's almost like someone is putting on a play of people working at a dock. Mm. But, you know, you can see that Uhuru crew are, are also mixed in. You can also see, you know, folks that you recognize around the dockside eateries and bars of Dumignon. And, of course, Gable, you haven't seen this before. You can see the massive hive ship of one of the Osei luxury cruisers uh, mm. that is docked not too far off from the Uhuru. It is truly staggering. It must be four or five times the size of the Uhuru, with many lavish-looking balconies and and lights heading off. It glows in the dark almost like its own sort of sun. And you can hear the sounds of music and revelry coming from that and really the ambient floating city around you. Oh my god, this looks so fun. It must be nice not to constantly be working. <laughs> you, uh, you and me both. I, okay. I started a thought and then I didn't finish it. So let's just keep on going. Uh, uh, I like, you say you started a thought and you didn't finish it. And I think this is a perfect moment for us to interject with the first part of Gable's Remembered Narrative. When the weather is dreary and the journey is stalled When I give all the ground that I gain I will think on your patience and kindness to all And mind not the wind nor the rain And if we are parted For to roam far and wide We won't leave broken-hearted With solemn goodbye Love cares not for distance It'll meet you and I Just as sure as the land meets the sea and the sky So, yeah. What a good game. Buddy? <laughs> he says wearing his star <laughs> sweatshirt. <laughs> it's a very good game. Mr. Brand. Yeah. I, 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 Again, this is my favorite role-playing game, and I play them for a living. Mm. With that, I do think we're ready to uh, get started. I, I will say um, I did ask the additional question of why are we in close proximity to one another? Um and I, I chose, I am meant to forge the instrument of the sovereign's justice. So that is kind of the relationship that, that I see for this is that you, Bellwether, not an official name that, that is recognized by the sovereign or, or his higher choirs of angels, have been called before the morning star. And I think perhaps you might be a little bit on edge. You've never 
interacted with the Morning Star. No. You, of course, know what the Morning Star is. The Morning Star is first among angels. The Morning Star is also the angel responsible for casting down angels who have not fulfilled their duties properly. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's happened more and more as of late. It hasn't been anyone in your choir, but you do know that occasionally your choir is the subject of the sovereign's displeasure mm-hmm. um, because of, well, I'll let you explain that. But yes, uh, you have been called before the morning star. It was tremendously unexpected. And I believe you are sat in a receiving room in one of the highest levels of heaven that you have ever seen. Stretching out on all sides around you is the cosmos. Um, But, of course, it is the cosmos arranged in an order. If you were to view this from another perspective, say the firmament of itself, it would look like a thoughtless and random collection of lights and nebulas and forces of creation that that has no sense. But looking at from this angle, you can tell it is a beautiful and sparkling floor, pure and radiant walls, um, soft and, and comfortable looking nebulas that one can sit oneself on. The other thing that I think is absolutely necessary for this is you are required to appear here in formal dress. And formal dress means the form of the sovereign, or at least an approximation of it as much as you can do, a being that looks human with wings. Mm. But I want to know what does Bellwether look like when they are dressed in formal dress in their current choir? So I think the first thing is not necessarily dress, but part of it, it feels like part of court etiquette that Bellwether is very used to speaking as we, like saying, we want to do this, we're doing this, because yeah. they are, they move in the choir, they don't move individually, uh, but like also amongst their siblings, there might not be a lot of reason to uh, refer to oneself as the individual. I like that a lot. Yeah, but... When in court and when asked to take the human form, the sovereign kind of gets off on pretending that angels are humanoid. So, like, we have to say I and take on the individual. So right now they're kind of, like, practicing that in their mind, saying, like, wait, no, I, I am. I am pleased to be here. And court dress itself Mm -hmm. is heavily armored. In uh, okay, so all all angels have to wear some armor. That's cool. It it's a the 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 signifier of power, but it's not useful armor. It's not the armor that they that like when they move through the world, they're intangible. They don't need it. It's unnecessary. It's just kind of highfalutin and uh, a little bit too much of a show of, of false strength in a way. And um. Yeah, but right now they don't have any armaments because the Sovereign has not given them any. 
Yeah. So you're sort of standing there in this like grandiose room uh, that is meant to be evocative of the sovereign himself. Um, You like I think all angels at one point in their lives have beheld the sovereign. Mm -hmm. I I think it was an intense experience and and probably something that happened like almost around birth. Mm. Um, I, the question that I have for you, which this is pretty nebulous, were you created before, after, or during the sovereign's relationship with the forest queen? After. After, okay. He, is the sovereign he? Yes, the sovereign is absolutely he. Is hey, is the patriarchy he him pronouns? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Our choir was created as a force not di- directly in opposition to the forest queen, but as an anticipation of oh, I can control <clears throat> your environment. Yeah, that makes sense. Um that is exactly what <laughs> hey, we got divorced and now we live next to each other. So I realize I can play loud music at night and be the worst. You can control what you can at this moment, but eventually they will destroy what you love. Yeah. Okay. That is mm, delicious. Delicious. So we see Bellwether like in this room. And I, I think above you is... It's it's not a fresco. It's not exactly what an architectural element might be, but it is. Yeah, maybe it is like this is how the room is designed. In that uh, above this this door um, entrance, like to deeper uh, in this level of of heaven, there is an arrangement of lights that are meant to evoke the sovereign's crown. Um, something that that you have seen before. Something that is incredible majesty. You can't remember it and can't forget it. And that's why it is is so obvious to you what it is as you sit beneath it, marveling at it. And I think the door, for lack of a better term, opens and a figure strides through it. I think one of the first things that you notice about this figure is that in their formal dress, they're so much shorter than you. They are wearing a robe, a beautiful interlocking chains of starlight that is overwhelming to your sense of sight, which which you are not used to relying on as much as you do in the current form that you hold in a very intense way. It is the sort of light that, you know, you you know exists out of the corner of your eye because it can be seen almost from anywhere. This being strides into the room. They have graceful and delicate features. They are in frame so much slighter than any form that we have known, Gable, Bellwether, or Uriel. They, they come through and they, you can see, have more wings than you. They have two wings upon their back, two wings upon their feet, two wings upon their wrists, and two wings at their hips. Hmm. 
it looks like the the chain mail of starlight that that covers their body is actually held in place for the most part by wings uh, unlike you know the the dress that you have in in your armored form it, it's not something that was made sensibly to rest upon the body it's something that is constantly held upon the body mm. and it is beautiful in its way Oh, yeah, I guess it's also got two wings on its face uh, that cover its, well, like that right now shield its eyes. And those wings slowly separate and you can see its face. They are a radiant thing, but a, also a gentle thing. And there is a hint of nervousness in their demeanor right now. They look at you in a kind of practiced way as, oh, didn't see you there. Like like uh, uh, someone putting on a one-person show. <laughs> I am the morning star, first among his angels, the fourth word of creation. And there is a pause. Yeah. And... <laughs> I, I think the whole scene is probably overwhelming, but I don't know that you've ever appeared in court before. Uh, Bellwether has, hasn't been given permission to speak. Mm. So they nod and face forward like a good soldier. You are one of his right hand, the 616th of his words of creation. And... The pause continues. And you may speak to me now. Huge sigh out. I send greetings from my choir, Morningstar. Tell me, child, do you know why you are here? I know the Sovereign requests me, and that is all I need to know. There is a slight smile, and, and, and maybe even a sad smile on the Morningstar's face. As... They approach you and, like, bend down or, 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 or crane up, I said, because they are shorter than you. Crane up to inspect you. They don't touch you, but they do move their hands, like, over you as though they were going to touch you. I guess, yeah, I should be framing it in this character's perspective. They can't ignore something about you that is so obvious to any being that would behold you in courtly dress, and that is your raw power. Even amongst your choir, even amongst angels of the right hand, you are a force. The Morning Star can't avoid thinking this as they see you. You were created for storms. Bellwether is distracted by the hand. Etiquette says they have to look forward, but they can't stop looking and kind of arching back as if this... What? No, no. I. What I like about this is I, I think... I think the Morning Star is walking around you in a circle right now. Um, so... The eyes on your head and eyes on your wings are probably just like just tracking like, this movement. And it's certainly like, oh, absolutely. Oh, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Oh, I'm in trouble. Oh, gosh. 
like this first appearance at court is just going so terribly. And so they uh, just decide storms, fire, rain, mudslides. It's kind of all. All my little gifts. And I would like to know, Liz, the way that you said that, it, um, th- there seemed like there was humility in it. H- how does that show in your character's movements? They, the choir knows that they haven't been behaving well. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of assumption here that this is probably a chastisement at best and a casting down at worst. And they're kind of going to bat for the rest of their choir here. But they are they can't deny, like, I enjoy being good at what I do. I enjoy being good at my job. And so they bring their hands together so as not to gesticulate with their enthusiasm over the subjects and just sort of look down and press their, their muscles together to prevent themselves from being overly enthusiastic over the thing they know they're in trouble over. I, I think we can see behind them now the the morning star again moving their hand close and we can see from the morning star's perspective what that is the radiant starlight that comes off of the chainmail they have slung over their form reflects off of your own courtly dress reflects off of the armor and you know for lack of a better word we're, we're going to call the flesh underneath they are inspecting you they are seeing you in all that you are and they lean in closer to your ear you you can't tell if it is intentionally doing that or merely just how they are speaking when they are close to you from this angle and have you ever aspired to anything else bellwether just laughs like <laughs> What do you mean? And with this, I think that the morning star steps out in in front of you again. And like there is, I think, a little bit of relief that that like washes over them. Like you can see their their wings like flex a little bit, make themselves quiet in a way. I don't think it's anything you need to worry about. You do seem worried, though. My siblings work hard. Our passion should not be punished. But if that is the... I think as you say, our passion should not be punished, like their eyes kind of flare and their posture changes. And also should be. So that is why I'm here. They are young. We are young. Should is such a fascinating word. Should in my experience, does not exist outside the words of the Sovereign. Where did you pull that should? I think I actually need you to pull a brick, because you have unintentionally revealed something about yourself. And from my perspective, Liz, this is that you think of a way that things should be that don't relate directly to things that the sovereign has said. Mm-hmm. Ooh, 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 ooh. 
Yeah, it's all bad. It's immediately all <gasps> so bad. Oh, God. Oh, James, this is a, oh, boy. What a untenable situation. Oh God, that's harrowing! Uh, oh my! This is gonna be a short game, baby. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> this happens in the first goddamn scene. I don't even know how to make sense of that. <laughs> Bad jobs. Okay. Once during a storm, the river rose, and a boar was on one side of the river. Its children were on the other. It seems strange to me that it just sat there. Could save his own life by simply moving away from the river. But I saw it think. I saw it consider, even as the river rose. I didn't stay for its decision because that was not my duty. But it was curious. My apologies. I relax. I relax away from my formal posturing and move back into unfamiliar territory. There is a moment where I look down and off to the side, considering something. And then slowly, the eyes on my wings, like one by one, like in a sequence, turn back to you. The angel of justice has been cast down for dereliction in their duty. They were sent to face the queen's guardian, and they fell in that encounter. The strongest among the angels, the power of the left hand of the sovereign, cannot fall to the guardian of the queen. It's too bad. What do you want me to talk to? I'm not clear on. Is this just gossip? Are you, uh, what's the. They were first an angel of judgment, one set to watch. The boar divided from its children by the river. One of many things that they saw in their time. I believe because they were set to watch and know and judge that when it came time to exact judgment, to become justice, they struggled to transform. And I believe part of this is my fault. And with that, I am revealing something about myself. Oh, I don't want it to be that one, though. Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. Here we go. Oh, God. It's all so bad. It sucks that I had to start this by drinking a Red Bull to become alert very quickly. So passionate. I'm so, I'm so shaky. Okay. The Morning Star, of course, revealing that they believe they have failed. 
or your failure is an impossibility. Such is your nature. I did not fail. However, I do blame myself for the way that she failed. She watched the Guardian live its life before it became the Guardian. She watched the romance between the Maiden and this changeling. And she, I believe, was invested in it. Invested in the tangle of lives of things that are beneath the will of the Sovereign. And so she failed. But I believe that you will not fail. In becoming the left hand will I no longer my siblings. I think the morning star reaches out and lays a hand on your cheek. Which is of course a pull. Bottom might be. Yeah, I know, but I want to save those. <laughs> oh, Jimmy, this is so bad. I think we just did it bad from the beginning. I believe one of the reasons that Alex chose these blocks is how unstable they are. I have only played with an official star-crossed tower a couple times. These bricks are rougher than <laughs> regular Jenga bricks, so they they bring the intensity of this game up to More a ten. Feelings. Yeah, they lay a hand upon your cheek. Bellwether recoils. Like, <gasps> and they raise their, their hand up as, as to say stop and step forward again to, to place that hand there to try and like the, their wings are flared in, in a way that like this is not a threat and, and not a thing to fear. Mm. You will always be connected to them but you will no longer share a choir. You speak of should, a, a thing that you know that exists outside of things that we know, things that we create and see. Should belongs to him. He has forged should, and he is made of should. You will become that. You will create what should be through your movements, through your actions, and through your sword. I serve in gladness. I look like I want to say something. My mouth opens, but I think better of it and close it instead. I flare my wings and the room, as it were, changes. The walls, the floor, all of the decorations shift in an instant. And you can see the nodes of creation, of raw creation, of divine force that makes up the place in which you both exist right now. And you can see that the end of each of these nodes is the end of a feather. And with little twitches of their own wings, some of these feathers 
come from the wall and attach themselves to you. I want to know what is your experience of this process. The idea, when you first started talking about the idea of transforming into the angel of judgment, an important part of that is knowing how it is to be a human moving in the world so you can know what is right, what is wrong. Mm -hmm. And part of it is downloading, essentially, the sovereign's it's evident that he prefers the human form mm -hmm. and it's the trick that angels can never have access to that form that he considers so perfect. It's all an, an illusion. But as these feathers start coming in, I start getting, you start feeling the senses of humanity and start feeling the, all the inertia and things that go into the human mind. So, Angels don't smell. Angels don't feel. Angels don't touch. Angels can't taste. So as that starts to happen, a huge shift goes through the body in that way that's almost nauseating in that all of a sudden starting to sense like, oh, I can interact with the world around me. It is not just a part of me. So like it starts as the smell, yeah. the smell of the firmament. Yeah, I, I think you are overwhelmed by sense. You know, you are used to sight. Sight is one of the things that is afforded all angels mm -hmm. because it is a necessary part of being in the way that you are expected to be. You're almost used to sound. Angels operate very much through sound. They are organized into choirs. Their existence is a song. And they become part of a beautiful instrument when working together. But all these other things, it's so much. And I don't think it's pain, as Gable will come to know pain in their time. But it is more than you've ever felt. I think it is overwhelming overstimulation in a way that is almost disgusting, almost uncomfortable. They like bending over and feeling like, oh no, th this is too much information for me to hold in my mind. And the morning star flares their wings and you can see them in their tremendous grandiosity. They are vast. The courtly dress of this being is small, smaller than you, but these wings they are so numerous and they flare in so many directions it looks like a tremendous wheel made of fire the ends of each flaring off and blending into the cosmos of creation and i reach back towards my feathers and i pluck these gold feathers from my skin and one by one, they move and plug in to your black wings, tinting it. Really? Really? Okay, James. Okay, James. Okay. <laughs> I forget that I end these scenes. 
Yeah. yeah. It's all up to you. Bellwether passes out. Good. The process has begun. And that's scene one. He's like, but this scene's going on a long time. Wait. No, it's this- your <laughs> job. That's your job. <laughs> and that's fine. That's fine. Because we, we get to show off more of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Returning from that, I I think like Gable sort of went out in a fog or a funk for a second. Mr. Gable? (laughs) Um, Okay. Hey heroes, it's James, your Game Master, and welcome to what now should actually be the real generic mid-roll, with one little extra bit added into it. We're doing a generic mid-roll because I just had my first child, they are a newborn, and they need someone to take care of them. Which means I don't have a lot of time for podcast work. Things that you need to know, in addition to the regular game that we play on this show, you're going to be hearing selections of a game of Starcrossed that Liz and I played. For those that don't know, Starcrossed is my favorite game of all time. It is a two-player romance RPG where you play two characters who really, really want to get together but have a really, really good reason keeping them apart. Instead of rolling dice or anything like that for mechanics, there is a Jenga tower in the middle of the table, and anytime the characters do something that increases intimacy between them, players have to pull a brick from that tower. If one of the players knocks over the tower, that player's character has to reveal their feelings, which could get extremely messy, and if the tower falls over at exactly the right time, could be a whirlwind romance written upon the stars. The tower for the game that Liz and I played was on the jankiest table on Earth that wobbled if you so much as breathed, uh, which is why you heard in the first part of the episode we had a pretty intense time playing. Starcrossed was designed by my dear friend and former network member, Alex Roberts, and is published by Bully Pulpit Games. You can pick up your own copy of Starcrossed by following the link in our show notes. A huge thank you to Lex, the lexicon artist, for joining us on this arc and not just playing an amazing game, but creating really incredible music, collaborating with Arnie Parrott, Tyler Davis, and because of how that music is employed on the show, Casey Tony. And also a huge thank you to Tracy Barnett, who assisted Casey Tony on the editing for this arc. As always, one of the biggest thank yous goes to our Patreon patrons who made everything you're listening to possible by supporting the show. Let's thank them right now. Thanks to everyone who supports us already and everyone who's going to support us in the future. Finally, happy Valentine's Day to everyone. Uh, I know Valentine's Day has already passed, but for One Shot Network patrons, uh, it has not quite passed yet because I today, the day that I am posting this, am uploading the digital Valentines that we commissioned this year that were commissioned from artist Susie Spooner, who you'll recognize from our Valentines last year. And those who are backing at the $15 level or more are going to be getting a physical copy of that Valentine in the mail. Uh, It's gorgeous. Um, Just truly, truly gorgeous. I I really hope everyone enjoys it. I also wrote a special short story set in the world of Sphere for Valentine's Day. Um, I 
did not quite finish it yet. Uh, mainly, uh, well, uh, maybe not mainly, but but uh, partially because uh, we are in the middle of a Tales from Thornvale at the end of our episodes. Um, and I didn't want to interrupt because we're in the middle of a two-parter. So you're going to be getting the special Valentine's story at the end of the episode that will either take up the back half of the episode, depending on how long it is, or um, just uh, be, be uh, a Dear Uhuru type segment next week. Um, I, I am going to finish it this week. Uh, so sorry about that, but also new short story. So maybe not sorry. Um, once again, thanks to everyone for supporting us on Patreon. Now then, with all of that out of the way, let's get back in the sky. I would I would like to fade out and zip across Dumignon to the outer regions where the urban environment kinds of fades away and we are more thickly in the brackish swamp near a large hill where we know Teacher Wei has posted up. I, I think like a tiny amount of time has passed since we last checked in on these two. They're, they're probably sitting somewhere comfortably together now where they can talk. Yeah. Where is that, Alex? I think Teacher Wei invites Jonnet after Teacher Wei accidentally falls from the rock and Jonnet saves them uh, from injury. I think that they invite Jonnet to sit, come, come climb up on the rock and uh, yeah, let's have a conversation there. But that's the same rock that you just fell off of. <laughs> there are so many more lower to the ground rocks. We could sit on the floor. <laughs> you gotta come up here. The view is amazing. I, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> Jonathan scrambles to the top. And the only reason I fell off just now was because you asked a lot of very emotional questions about the Temple of the Liquid Swords, which kind of caught me off guard and uh, forced me to move my head in such a way that I lost balance. But as you can see, there are plenty of flat spaces on this rock that allow us to uh, sit and uh, look at the natural formations that are in this uh, area of Dominion. I feel like at that, Jonnet just takes a, a quick once around of the of the uh, the large like the landscape just to like take in. Uh, I guess the the craters, the the swamp, and just like there's like wow. So how long have you been here, and have you been waiting for me this whole time? I've been waiting for you the whole time, but I can say I've only been here about two days. I'm sort of on vacation right now, a uh, an extended vacation uh, with no particular uh, destination. <laughs> how are you getting around? You are you jumping ship to ship? Where are you going next? Do you need a transport? Um, yes, I am actually jumping ship to ship, and uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind uh having transport, but I don't know if my schedule necessarily lines up with yours. <laughs> oh, dude, fine. Yeah, I'm busy. I'm busy too. <laughs> are you really? <laughs> yeah. So, Jonathan. 
I'm interested in knowing uh, what makes you think you want to, or you what makes you think that you're ready to receive training from the Liquid Swords. Janet, <laughs> Janet gives Teacher Way a look of like, "Are you crazy? Like <laughs> this thing just showed up on my head, and now I can see the future. I need to learn. I need to figure out what what this is." doing what this can do it uh uh it's so it's so huge and massive and scary and and anyone who seems to know anything about this eye keeps telling me about the liquid swords and so i i i feel like i've gotta at least learn more but then you're also saying that you kind of aren't down with the liquid swords and i'm torn but i'm also I have a third eye. I didn't have. I that just showed up. So I'm getting this vibe that you you have this sort of anxiety about your eye, and you don't have it, actually have a firm conviction as to why you want to be at the Liquid Swords. You don't have like a strong vision, so to speak. All you want to, all you know, is what you don't know. You don't know what this eye is. You don't know what you want. You just want to know what it is. And that's not really enough. And here's why. We don't really let people in on any secrets just out of curiosity. That's not something that we do, especially not for people who are as young as you who have no direction. And we also want to make sure that people who uh, receive training at the Liquid Swords don't end up doing anything nefarious with the knowledge. Uh, And right now, I can't judge whether you will or you won't because... You don't have a conviction, and I can't tell if you do. When Wei says we want to make sure people don't do anything nefarious with our training, Jonnet, briefly, I think you think back to Bujanith, the two monks that you encountered there who took bribes uh, to not do their work for the city, and the fact that you and Traveler Quan had to together force back the mariner. I I think above all else it's it, it's hard to find conviction without clarity and I I just want to be clear on what this is and and yes the 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 liquid swords they it feels like a a much larger undertaking than I I thought that it would be but it's my only option and so then if that's the only option, then I'm going to go after it as hard as I can. I've seen people do... I've seen people do amazing things with a power that I believe the Liquid Swords is able to, to bestow. And I've also seen people do sleazy things and, and not be in service of the greater good. And I don't have time for that. I don't have time to be those people, those... The people that are out for themselves. I have friends that I care about, that I love, that that need my help. And I want to be the best version of myself in order to help them. And, and to do that, I need to understand this. And in order to do that, I need to understand the Liquid Swords. Oh, boy. You are so giving. <laughs> um, you're, you seem to sacrifice so much for your friends and so much for people who are not you. And... uh 
I just want to let you know that people are people, and uh, uh, a lot of people that I know, even in the Liquid Swords, are uh, selfishly driven and work for themselves to enrich themselves, to benefit themselves. And uh, you might be quite disillusioned by what you find, but I almost feel like. You know, seeing that you have such a good heart, you deserve a chance. But here's what I want to do: I want to uh, go on a journey with you、uh, to see some parts of your past and to also explore some parts of my past as well, so you can get a better understanding of me. I would love to know if you have a background of hardship. You know what your、uh, upbringing was like. You know, to, just to get a better idea of、uh, your motivations. So, I would like to go on a journey with you. Is that something that you would like to do? Are we gonna physically go somewhere? No, not physically, but metaphysically. Are you a doctor? I, as I said, I was a metaphysician in training before、right. I before I dropped out of <laughs> metaphysician school.、Uh, that's how I knew Doctor Kaplan,、uh, who sent you here. But the metaphysical journey that I'm proposing is of a different nature, and it has something to do with some of these treats that I've prepared. Lex, I would like to know what what does the Finished product of what Teacher Wei was crafting earlier look like. They're kind of glowing a little bit, and like what color? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking like some sort of a bit of a purpley cyan, you know, kind of fairy-looking, you know, type circular palettes. I think. So, like, we're in a swamp,、mm-hmm. and in a swamp at night. I've described, you know, the heavens of Sphere、mm. have a few stars, but they're mostly empty. I do like the idea of, although there aren't stars, like auroras are very common、yes. in the sky.、Yeah. So we have the the sliver of the moon, the 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 sliver of like this moon that is basically at crescent, and this sky that is full of these, you know. Purpley cyan lights that really reflect like the purpley cyan of these. W- w- what shape are they? Yeah, I would say they're kind of like disc shaped, just like very painstakingly pressed with fingers into like a circular disc shape, almost kind of like a coin, but a little thicker, like a vitamin tablet. And yes, I would say that they are catching the light from these,、uh, like the, the sliver of the moon, the auroras. Maybe they don't even like give off that much light themselves, but because of like what's in them, it's kind of reflecting and sparkling a little bit. Yeah, Jonat, I, I think what's in front of you looks a bit like a slice of the night sky,、uh, Lex. And I would like to know: is there? How are they being presented? I have to imagine, especially since Teacher Wei has been doing this for a long time. Like, there's a bit of a culture around it. You know, we've talked before about how you know this is a little bit you know hallucinogenic drug use. So, what is Wei's kit like? What what does what does Wei keep their stuff in? Yeah, like a little bowl. I think I mentioned in the last session that Wei has a little like, kind of like grinding bowl. It's kind of like kept separate from the materials. And then what they did was kind of drain the water from the raw materials and then pack them together and then dipped them in a little bit of water again in 
the bowl to have this kind of like binding agent for the the materials. And so I imagine they have drained all of the water out of that bowl and are now, I think, like maybe like just like levitating it, uh, levitating the bowl and allowing. Jonathan to see like what's inside, kind of like just just a shadow, shallow little Asian-inspired bowl. Jonathan is taking in these small little little discs. Is I assume that there's just two. Yes. Okay, and yeah, he's definitely just kind of putting them together. He's kind of looking at them, sort of either give off or or catch or reflect light in a sort of a magic also a little eerie of a way mm-hmm. and and he kind of points down at them and he's like what is this going to do this is going to allow us to enter what i like to call my pocket space uh, which is uh the power of my third eye if you are interested in taking this journey with me to understand a little bit more about both of us and about how the liquid swords might relate to your fate what we're gonna do is put the tablet into your eye and then we're going to we're gonna touch our eyes together and then we're gonna enter this pocket space together and take a walk through this space take a walk through our past uh our potential futures and maybe help you find your direction huh i didn't think that this i didn't know that it was a room um (laughs) uh and he he grabs one grabs his before you do anything with it i think a little white finch comes and lands right next to you I feel if it if it lands right next to him, I think there's a there's a moment where John Ed is taking in the disc. The finch comes, and John is like, "Shoot, get out of here, get out of here!" <laughs> Again, we've described this bird as one thing, and that's professional. professional. <laughs> so, like, it it sort of dodges around your fingers and hands and, and tweets at you very insistently. And then John Ed finally sets it back down, looks at the finch, and the finch bows. Uh, okay, you have. I uh, give me one second, just a one moment. No problem. And, and John is like Travis. <laughs> <laughs> Travis, are you a different, different bird? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, okay. Um, and then I think he he kind of clocks the the message, I guess on the on the the leg, and maybe offers his hand out and i assume the the bird very promptly gives him the message and i guess he what does the message say collectively nathan and johnny <laughs> i need to know what you wrote because <laughs> you were successful mm-hmm. i guess because travis has direct control over what words put down <laughs> I, I i i have less control over the sentence structure than uh than than Travis, but something to the effect of feeling feeling better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> feeling First of all, better. <laughs> Travis has matters to attend to. 
Armar is supervising. It's C attached. I guess it's it's captain or cap'n is more likely because it's compressed. It's supervising uh, C attached. Oh my gosh. I want this to be like like a for real email mm-hmm. thread just, just at the end. Oh, just, God, just like, yes. Taped, literally, like, taped on more. <laughs> Very good. John, John looks at, at this. Wait, who wrote either of these? I know we're referring <laughs> to the captain and Travis, but, like, who uh, who wrote? I've never seen this handwriting before. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> I like how the one request that this group made to me is that they have the ability to text each other and... <laughs> All of you have independently established that no one in this universe is equipped to understand text <laughs> messages. <laughs> so, so Jonet takes a second. He's like, "Okay, I, all right." And the first feeling better because I know it's it's a huru. It's got to be a huru. And then the first letter, well, I guess feeling better. That's got to be Gable. It's got to be Gable. <laughs> so Gable's feeling better. That's cool. They're going into the tunnel. Okay. Well, I. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So John, John kind of reaches back into his pack, pulls out a, qu- a little quill, and then finds a, a little piece of parchment. Uh, I guess the the sphere equivalent of tape, <laughs> and which which feels to me like it's like some kind of like small dry parchment that you like lick and then mm-hmm. get sticky, <laughs> and then you just stick on the back. And then John writes about to put glowing tablet in eye. Teacher Way approves. It's Jonnet. <laughs> See y'all later. <laughs> if I, if you don't, if you don't hear, oh, I gotta get another piece of ta- tape. Okay, flip. Ding. All right. If you don't hear from me in eight hours, come to in brackish water. He gives he gives relays like some landmarks of where he is with the. <laughs> The very precarious but uh, perchy rocks, XOXO. Um, and then he fills that back up, it gives it to the bird, and then <laughs> gives the name of Gable to then send the bird back off. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> now, you know, I think we forgot to sign the letter. <laughs> you were in a position to do so. Well, so were you. You know, you didn't move me to the signy part. So that's kind of on you. <laughs> the signy part. <laughs> or Moss shrugs. Yeah. <laughs> so then Jonet comes back. He grabs the tablet, the coin, the disc. Yeah, I'm somehow thinking right now that, like, you know, while we were having this conversation, that it should be almost like the application of a contact lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 1,000%. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I think... John it kind of processes out that this tablet is slightly larger than what he thinks his eye is. So he's going to go full contact and like take his hand, grab like his upper eyelid, and he's going to like open it up. And then he's the whole time his two eyes are on Teacher Way, just being like, I'm doing this right. I'm doing this right, right? And then, yeah. okay, okay. And then he kind of like slides it in, does like a small press to like get the air bubble out and then he like closes all of his eyes opens them back up and I feel like I don't know this is a pitch flex but like I feel like when he opens his eye back up the color of his eye is now the color of the tablet 
Yeah. Like that reflective-y, starlight-y, like moonlight-y uh, hue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. And all this time, I've been, uh, Wei has been watching, just making sure that Janet isn't freaking out because obviously this is his first time doing this. And like they've been watching with patience, making sure that like they were able to apply it correctly. And then once they see that hue, they were like, okay, you're good. So Wei does it. And obviously, Wei is a pro. So their eye just kind of like, just kind of like widens on its own. And then they just like pop it in with like one without like without two hands, just like one hand, just like a single like the tablets on here, just like you and then does the same thing. I, I feel like there's there's a there's a small moment where like Jonathan's eye is kind of blinking to settle it in. Yeah. And then like it blinks and then there's a wrinkle. He blinks again. It falls out. <laughs> Jonathan. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. And then and then and then Slam just like like stretches the eye out more so than before and just like slaps it in. Ow. Yeah. <laughs> then okay. <laughs> you comfortable? I uh and so he he's going to take his pack off and then he's just going to like put his pack maybe like under his butt to kind of cushion himself. I, I I guess I'm as comfortable as I can be. Okay, you're about to get uncomfortable because you're gonna touch your eye to my eye. <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh, so then he takes the pack out <laughs> from under his butt again. He just starts leaning forward towards your neck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think as you do, it's the sort of thing where I don't know if either of you really are able to tell if what you're seeing or sensing is happening in a physical space or just a metaphysical space. But as you lean in, it feels like there is a glowing light that sparks between you, that the area around you moves to have a warm silver gold glow. Mm. Um, And the closer the two of you get, spirals and lines start coming out. You know, there is the sort of natural pathways of the universe that Jonnet is used to seeing when his eye flares open. But here those are hazier. They they are running together. They are moving in a more slow spiral that feels almost like the fluid way that water flows. And instead of the rigid pathways that the universe generally presents, each one being distinct from the last, moved about in almost a, a, a mechanical click of difference between the things that you could do. This, it feels like the pathways seem to flow together. Forward and back start to become indistinct. And We can see zooming out from these characters as we have, Lex, I really love the dramatic picture of Jonnet leaning his forehead forward to match up with Teacher Wei's neck. There is something very like teacher-student and almost nurturing about it. We can see this halo surround the two of them, but it is not like Gable's halos. I I think the halos that that we see around Gable when they are performing divine magic is very geometric. Mm -hmm. 
and very rigid. And this is so much more fluid. There, there are more curves in these lines of this light. Right. Uh, but it is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's less geometric and feels a lot more organic. That's a good Ooh, like roots. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, like roots. And like I think that checks out because I was talking about how this material was taken from like the fungi and I was thinking that maybe those could be extensions of like the roots of these plants. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And and, and in many ways it represents uh the sort of branching roots of a river delta yeah. as well, which I think like we, we focus on this halo seeing you two in profile and then zip over the two of you up top and we can see these divine branches sort of spreading out and almost sporing out from, from the two of you as your eyes draw closer and closer together. And we can then see that zipping even farther. We can see that on one of the fronds of, of, of the river's canals that branch out into this larger swamp that make up Dumignon, we can see a light almost like an eye on an angel feather open And we're back. <laughs> oh, was that y'all I was hearing singing that wonderful rendition of Happy Duck in the River? It was? Well, wonderfully done. Wonderfully done indeed, my friend. Oh. Maybe we should sing a few more songs after. Oh, well, well, but first, sit yourselves down, get cozy, and let's hear Freddie finish his story, shall we? Mr. Hawthorne, the firelight is yours. Oh, uh, thank you, Mr. Coriander. Well, uh, where was I? Oh, yes, oh, yes. Winter Steel Bridge stretched out in front of me as long as a lifetime. Now that I was alone, I wasn't so sure about going forward. The bridge, while it looked sturdy enough, and it was as wide as two wagons didn't feel safe. Something eerie swam in that velvety mist, and, and I wavered. But I knew there were people beyond this place, beyond this bridge, beyond this mist, that needed the mail. So, I took a deep breath, and I started walking. I walked for hours in that cold gray mist, the freezing steel beneath my feet my breath hanging in plumes around my head. I saw strange things as I walked through that mist. Big things. So big, they moved the mist and made the bridge shudder as they passed under them. I saw people on the bridge, too, dressed in rags with haggard looks in their faraway eyes. I naturally called out to them, tried to speak to them, get a response, but, uh, most only stood there, 
looking into the mist or sitting on the ground. Their eyes would move to me, but it was as if they were a house with a light on, but no one was home. At one point, I saw a woman walking out of the mist towards me, coming in the opposite direction. I, I asked her what the journey was like, where she'd come from, but she just muttered to herself and kept walking. And uh, so, so did I. I. Not the muttering part, the walking. Step after step, and until finally I, I came to, well, I came to a statue. And beyond the statue, just feet beyond it, mind you, there was nothing. The bridge just ended. For a moment, I, I, I didn't know what to do. The bridge stopped and literally dropped off into the mist and, and nothingness. But I knew I couldn't go back. Not yet. So I looked around. The statue, well, it, it wasn't a statue of really anything. It, at least, not anymore. It was so old and weathered that the features on it had worn away. There were hints of a face and maybe wings, or was it eyes? I, I don't know. It was a figure of some kind, and it had a, a, a feet, a, a base, hooves, something. But there, just below that, there was a bowl, a good, sturdy stone bowl. Now, I'd been a master all courier a long time at this point, and uh, I'd been one long enough to know this. This was an offering bowl, and when you see an offering bowl, you give an offering. So put my last pair of wool socks into it. I looked up, and the bridge continued. Whole and complete, stretching out there. A second ago, it was nothing, and now it was a bridge. And I didn't give it a second thought. I picked myself up and continued on my journey. After only about ten minutes of walking from that statue, the mist began to clear. Before I knew it, I was blinking in sunlight as I looked up at a small village made of hewn stone and tiled roofs, built into the side of a mountain, the jagged, broken spear peak rising over all of it. And there, at the center of the village, there was a tree, its body almost black, with leaves the most perfect shade of delicate pink I'd ever seen. I had made it, and there were people, happy, cheerful people, who called out to me when they saw me. A young woman came up to me and asked me who I was, and I, I told her I was a Swiftwell courier and that I had mail. And she excitedly took me up to the tree, calling everyone she could as we went to, to bring everybody. By the time I had reached the shade of the tree, oh, there must have been a hundred or more people. And uh, at first I, I was worried because I knew there was only about a dozen or so deliveries to be made. But um, as I read out the names... And handed out letters and parcels and packages. I always found there was something else in my bag. I felt like I called out names and passed out mail for hours sitting there. Until so finally, the last letter was given out. And the people, they thanked me profusely and offered me a meal and a place to sleep and even a party to celebrate my arrival. <laughs> and I was sorely tempted to take them up on their offer. It had been a long day walking. And usually I would, I would be fine with something like that. But um, 
Something told me deep down, deep down inside, that if I accepted their hospitality, I'd never leave this place. Now, um, I can see the look on your faces. I feel like I need to explain this. I never felt like I was in any danger. I'd been to towns where they treated you kindly at first and then tried to rob you blind or worse while you slept off the generous and drugged feast they gave you. But this, this didn't feel like that. This felt different. This felt welcoming. Like I was home. You see, I didn't want to leave. And I knew that if I spent any more time here, I never would. So, using all of my grit and determination, I decided to leave. And I refused politely and gifted away all the rest of my mittens and hats and scarves. And I left. And you know, the whole town, well, what I assumed was the whole town, followed me up, expressing their sadness that I couldn't stay. Or, And as I was about to go... Some of them came up, and um, they hugged me and thanked me for the mercy I'd, I'd performed for them. You know, I don't think I'll ever forget that feeling. How loved I felt. And I wavered for just a moment, thinking I could say something that maybe I could stay. But I stepped out onto the bridge, and I turned my back and kept going, letting the mist envelop me. I'll tell you, I, I cried a little as the village disappeared from sight. But I kept going until finally, out of the mist, I saw the statue. And there, sitting by the statue, there, um, there was someone at the base. His back was turned to me, and I, I knew that coat, and, uh, and that hat, and the satchel. It was me. No lie to the lumen. It was me, sitting there at the base of that statue, slumped against it as if I was asleep. I felt my mind recoil at the thought and get confused. How could I be here and there at the same time? So, I, I crept up to it, me, whatever, and I reached my hand out to touch the shoulder, to look into my face, to make sure when no sooner had I touched my own shoulder, I awoke with a start, sitting at the base of the statue. Gasping in so much cold air it made my lungs hurt. I scrambled to my feet and looked out beyond the statue at the bridge, but there wasn't anything there. It was as it was before, a, a sudden drop off into nothing. The path to the village completely gone. And what was more, all the rest of my wool goods were gone. And the satchel that Fathina had given me, with all that mail, was empty. There comes a time, my young friends, after every adventure or strange happening in this world, 
that you just accept it. Sure, you'll think about it later, dissect it over and over and over again, and tell your friends and talk about it. But for the moment, you accept it. You accept that something extraordinary happened to you, and you move on. I had hours of walking on a freezing bridge ahead of me, and I had no time to consider the ramifications of what I had just experienced. So I walked back, right back to the barn, to find obstinacy waiting there for me, patient. And there was the old man as well. He told me he was surprised to see my face, and I told him I was also surprised to see him. He smiled at me and offered me that extra pair of socks I'd given him. I said he could keep them, and he said that he'd held them for the last five days, so the least he could do was give them back to me now. So I took them, and I wear them every fifth day to this day. You know, I'm not sure why. Just felt like the right thing to do. And that, as they say, <clears throat> is that. That's the end. Why, thank you, Freddy. That was a mighty wonderful story. And I'm sure we all will be thinking about it for quite some time as we ponder the meaning of this story for us. But, in the meantime, let's have another tale, shall we? Who'd like to go next? Campaign Skyjacks is a one-shot network production. For more information, be sure to follow us on Twitter over at CampaignPod for updates about live shows and other events we might be doing. Welcome to Character Creation Cast, a show where we create and discuss characters, the best part of role-playing games, with guests using their favorite systems. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Bolter. And I'm your other host, Amelia Antrim. Join us as we sit down with game designers, podcasters, and fans of games as we dive into learning about different RPGs through the lens of character creation. It's a combination of character building, player advice, game design insights, and even a little bit of fan fiction for a different game every month. We tackle a variety of new and old games, both well-known and indie-produced titles. We learn how creating characters can tell us a lot about the games themselves. Check us out today anywhere you can get podcasts or on the OneShot Podcast Network at OneShotPodcast.com. You can find more great gaming shows over at OneShotPodcast.com. Like Asians Represent. Asians Represent celebrates Asian creators and diversity in the gaming community. Join hosts Agatha Chang and Daniel Kwan as they discuss gaming, genre, and representation with their guests and occasionally argue with each other about the sound of Agatha's beloved Airhorn app. Jonnet Kessler was played by Tyler Davis, who can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Tyler A. Dave. He also co-stars and consults on Showtime's Work in Progress. Gable was played by Liz Anderson, who can be found on Twitter at LizAnderson underscore underscore underscore, or on her podcast, Paired. 
Travis Matigo was played by Johnny O'Mara, who can be found on Twitter at Johnny and Briefs or on his podcasts, Bill Buds and Dilettante Ball. Captain Oromar Vale was played by Nathan Blades, who can be found on Twitter at Phantom Arts ENT. You can also find them streaming on twitch.tv slash the neoncaster. I am James D'Amato, your host and game master. You can find me on Twitter at OneShotRPG or on my other podcast, OneShot. The original music featured in this podcast was written, composed, and performed by Arnie Parrott. You can find him on Twitter over at A-R-N-E-P-A-R-R-O-T-T. You can find more of his work at atptunes.com. This episode was edited by Casey Tony, who can be found on Twitter at Casey Pony or on his podcast, Neoscum. Our logo was designed by Fiona Shea, who can be found on Twitter at Fiona Pup. The World of Sphere was inspired in part by the music of the Decemberists, and Illimat, produced by Together Studios. This show uses a modified version of the Genesis role-playing system, designed by Sam Stewart and a team of talented professionals who were fired by the private equity firm owning Fantasy Flight Games. To the strangers who've ever been kind, and once for our friends near to rise. Twice to the dearest we're leaving behind Who know we can never deny The call of the sky